Welcome to the Impact Gap Podcast. We are a graduate student-run, patient-centered podcast group based at the University of Toronto. Our mission is to provide a platform for patients and advocates to share important patient issues within our healthcare system. Today, our special guest and I will be talking about sickle cell disease. Approximately 5,000 Canadians, including children, have sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is a group of life-threatening inherited blood disorders that can shorten the life of affected individuals by more than 30 years. It is caused by abnormally shaped red blood cells that can impair blood flow, causing strokes, lung disease, and organ damage. Although sickle cell disease is not curable at the moment, it can be managed by patients, their families, and healthcare providers with proper education and training. The Sickle Cell Association of Ontario provides programs and services geared towards supporting those who are currently living with sickle cell disease and people who support them using the CARE model. It includes counseling, advocacy, raising awareness, and education. Our guest today is Serena Thompson. She is a patient advocate living with sickle cell disease and is a part of the Sickle Cell Association of Ontario. To get started, Serena, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you very much um, for the introduction. Um, Well, you know, I um, was born with sickle cell disease in the United States. And uh, back then, my parents uh, came up from uh, Jamaica. So they did not know about sickle cell until I was born because um, once I was born, they had to test my parents and then found out that they had the trait. So uh, from there, I came to Canada and um, was immediately um, brought to a sick kids hospital anytime I had a crisis. So, um, and that was the only hospital at at that time that could deal um, with sick children um, and, and sickle cell crisis. So, uh, used to, that would be basically my second home. And, um, cause I was sick quite often when I was younger, um, mainly because I think I was just living like, you know, um, every other child and, um, some of the things would add stress or it was too physical for me to deal with. So I would end up in crisis. Um, and then growing up in, um, you know, high school and college, it was very difficult. Um, um, you know, the one thing I was doing was hiding the fact that I have sickle cell. So um, nobody knew except maybe my closest, closest friends. And so I'm trying to live normal, be normal, knowing that I had this condition. Um, and then college, I wasn't able to finish college um, because of the fact that I would get sick every semester. Um, I About 12 years ago, I decided to volunteer and, and I ended up volunteering, yes, with the Sickle Cell Association of Ontario. Yeah, so, you know, that's something how um, I knew for a very long time I wanted to advocate in some way 
I think it was what really triggered it is when I had my daughter. I had my uh, I had my daughter at 25. Then I realized that the help I needed, um, especially when I would go get sick and she's a baby and, you know, it's in the middle of the night, who's going to take her? Um, I was always advocating for some sort of help back then. Yeah. Wow. That's really an incredible journey, Serena. Um, what was really striking was you mentioning that you were hiding the fact that you had sickle cell disease. Um, would you be able to share um, why um, you felt you uh, wanted to hide it and um, maybe what consequences you felt you um, may be subject to if, if you were not hiding it? It felt back then, it felt like, you know, a disease nobody ever heard of. And when you use the word disease, they think it's contagious. So um, I would never say anything. Gave it away is that my eyes, the dentist in my eyes. So um, they would always ask me, why is your eyes green? That's what they'll, that, that's the color they see. So they always ask me, why is your eyes green? Then I have to tell them what I have. And then they're like, the first reaction was, oh, is that contagious? I'm like, obviously not. <laughs> um, you know, and that was the hardest part, always thinking that I'm contagious and um, people not understanding what sickle cell disease is at all, to the point where I had to do a project on it in my chemistry class or biology class. So I think that's when I started advocating. Yeah, thank you for all of the work that you do in advocating for those who are living with sickle cell disease. This is a really, really important issue, and I'm glad that you're here today to uh, share some insights with us. Um, you mentioned um, that you know no one had heard of sickle cell disease while you were growing up. Uh, would you be able to comment on maybe um, interactions you've had with healthcare providers? Did you feel that they were knowledgeable about this or... Um, well, when I was younger, it was sick kids hospital. So um, I was just devastated each time when they come back and say, I have to stay, you know, overnight. That's the last thing a child wants to hear. So I remember always crying and then making the crisis worse and um, wanting to stay in the hospital because I knew that means I don't see my parents, strange place, strange people. Um, you know, there was only, there was one familiar face all the time. And she, um, even though I still was devastated that, you know, each time I have to be admitted, I knew at least her, I, I at least knew the, the doctor, the hematologist. Um, I just remember one time um, I was sick, my friend, actually came and brought me like my homework and and stuff like that it was and it was like the weirdest thing i think she was the first person that ever um visited me from school um so that was a different uh that was a different experience i i will never forget that mm -hmm. um what about that experience made it so unforgettable for you um i think the fact that somebody cared look like somebody cared. I mean, it could have been anybody to say, um, you know, I'll bring her homework or whatever, but I, I don't even know how, I don't even know how that worked out. I guess she contacted my parents and, you know, 
had homework to bring for me. And it was a really nice surprise. It was knowing that somebody cared and realized that, you know, I'm not at school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that really warms my heart that uh, someone was able to um, have that care for you and, you know, just stop by and bring over some homework. It's the small things. Yeah. Would you be able to share with us one of the hardest moments that you've encountered? You know, the 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 main thing is to be recognized that, um, you know, having a crisis is is really critical and needs to be taken care of right away. And so we've been pushing for we, we want to be seen at least the first 30 minutes once you reach AED. And we understand that things are busy. We understand, uh, you know, and especially through COVID, it's, you know, uh, uh, um, it's different now. But even back before COVID, it was hard to get them to understand the intensity of the pain. It's real. It's because it's invisible why it's hard for us to explain. And, um, you know, we're so used to it, you're not going to see us cry. So we're used to it. You're not going to see us winch, you know. Um, But when we say the pain is a 10 out of 10, it's a 10 out of 10. And it needs to be dealt with. And, you know, the hardest part is getting that oxygen and getting the um, IV running and getting, you know, medication as soon as possible. That's the hardest um, part. And... You know, we hear this from everybody. It, it starts with the ED. It starts with the ED. And so if there was, um, you know, training, um, education, uh, awareness, you know, from the public, then, um, you know, changes can be made. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched upon um, something that was really important that this is invisible pain. And um, it, it sounds like there's so much work convincing healthcare professionals of this pain. And you mentioned, you know, when you say it's a 10 out of 10, it's a 10 out of 10, but they don't believe us because we're not crying or we're not bleeding or something's not broken. Because um, if something's broken, all of a sudden everybody's, oh, that's painful. Give them their morphine. But for us, it's like, yeah, it's painful in our bones and muscles and tissues is very painful. So, um, you know, we need that same attention as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As you mentioned, it starts in the ED. Yeah. Um, Would you be able to share more about how bias and the challenges with dealing with invisible pain come up in your experiences at the emergency department? Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, this is part of what, it's almost like a routine that we go through. So once we get sick, once we realize that we're, we're really ill and, and need the help and have to go to the hospital, um, for me, when I'm sick in the middle of the night, already in my PJs or my sweats. I'm already, you know, my hair is already um, wrapped up or whatever, you know, um, I'm, I'm sleeping. So once I do have a crisis, I get up 
there was times when I would just get up and go exactly how I was because I don't have time for anything else but to get jump in a car and get to the hospital. Now it's like a routine where I, I feel like I have to dress up. I feel like I have to put myself together in um, a way to uh, catch their attention and um, make them feel comfortable to approach me. Um, so if I'm looking like a so-called bum, I would have to say, then that is the sweatpants and the hair tie back and all this stuff. Um, and that is somehow uncomfortable. I, I noticed that was uncomfortable for a lot of people. And, you know, they wouldn't approach me. They would approach me a certain way. When I change now to putting makeup on, doing my hair, take my hair out and do it, um, you know, put on decent clothes. Um, I don't know what made me do that, but I noticed it worked. You know, there's times me, <laughs> I'm, very, I'm a proud person. So most of the time I don't cry. Most of the time I, you know, you're not going to see all of that. Um, even though I'm in excruciating pain. But I realize, no, I should be to the ER. Even though they don't see anything, I'm not able to walk. So that means I need help more than somebody walking into the ER. So I had to switch that up to get the proper attention. So I'm dressed up and in a wheelchair. So something has to be really wrong. Um, you know, and that's, that's what I've been doing all the time. Now I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. This was before. Now it's if, if it hits me in the middle of the night, I'm just getting up the way I am and go. I don't have time. But most of the time, you know, I, I would have to call, say, my dad or a friend to come and pick me up and take me. Um, and then at least that shows that someone's helping me because I'm not able to uh, move on by myself. Somebody has to be with me. So it's almost like a play, you know, putting on a play every time. And then I found out other people do the same thing. And I had no clue. I thought I was the only one. And then when I, you know, um, once we had the support group and uh, we're sharing our story. And then when, you know, I heard somebody say that, I was like, what? I thought I was the only one that does that. And then we realized, yeah, this is a problem. We shouldn't even have to think about that when we're in excruciating pain. In terms of, uh, you mentioned some definitely very problematic issues with the healthcare system. Um, do you have any suggestions on some strategies that would make you feel more heard um, or things that healthcare professionals can do so that they can listen to their patients better, especially with regards to pain? There's a protocol out there that um, hospitals can, as, can use as guidance um, in assessing their uh, sickle cell patient. And um, the protocol was used um, in one of the hospitals in Scarborough while one of the hematologists ended up being chief of staff. I think that's how it worked. And uh, he was able to train the staff and let them know 
There's a protocol. Anybody comes in with sickle cell crisis, their information is here. Just go ahead with the order sets and then call me after the fact. By then, when that would happen, if I go in, I'm out the same day. I'm staying overnight. I'm not there for a week admitted and so on. I'm just down in the emergency room for say one night, one day. And I feel way much better. The the pain is controlled and, um, you know, and then I can continue on with my life. Right. So we're trying to say that this is something that works and that every, every hospital across the country, especially across Canada, should be using the protocol. So one thing that we're doing at Sickle Cell Association of Ontario is uh, championing for uh, protocol um, to be in every hospital across Canada. As being part of Sickle Cell Association of Ontario, we are pushing for that protocol. So um, we're pushing for the protocol and we're, we're, we're pushing for, um, you know, uh, a, a complete comprehensive care model for those living with sickle cell. Yeah, and this program sounds like really, yeah, the protocol seems like something that would be really, really helpful and definitely should be something that should be scaled to other hospitals and other sites across Canada, absolutely. Um, and I guess uh, now that we're sort of reaching the wrap up, um, I guess one of the last questions I have for you, Serena, um, if you are to reflect and um, what would you say is the one important message that you'd like to share with our listeners today? I want to share that everybody is different, but we are the same. We're human beings. And, you know, look at us as human beings first before any biases pops up in your head. I understand everybody has biases and we're just asking for you to put that aside when you see somebody coming in with pain and you cannot see it whatsoever. You have to take the word of that patient and treat the pain. Um, Thank you so much for this interview. I really hope it does and will help Uh, people to speak more about it, talk more, engage more, um, you know, and advocate more. Thank you so much to our special guest for being a part of our conversation today. You can find more information about us on our website at impactgap.wordpress.com or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at impact underscore gap. If you have a story that you'd like to share and are interested in joining us as a guest, you can contact us at impactgap at gmail.com.